Indian brother here by the name of Alwyn. He's a very clever chap, works with CVC, and I know they've got a new name, I think, CVC, but never mind. And his ears pricked up when he saw that Vijay needs a godly wife. He said, I've got so many lovely young Christian girls in my new church and I'm going to go and see Mohan and I'm going to introduce him to one of the girls in my church. Now, that's, <laughs> that's how they do it in India. So if you've got a problem, maybe you need to go to India and, and uh, get it all sorted out. It's just lovely to be with you, <clears throat> and we're beginning this new year with a, a new subject. We've had some lovely ministry over the past few weeks, and it's been really encouraging. But we're getting back into Bible study, back into the systematic exposition of God's Word, and that's the plan today. So let me pray. Lord, we just thank you for today. We thank you that we have your Word in our hands. We thank you that you speak to us through your word. We thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. And we just ask, Lord, for your very special grace for us over these coming weeks to be able to grasp what it is that you're saying to us through 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, rather. Lord, we ask that you will make it relevant to us, not just knowledge, but knowledge that leads to, to behaviour, knowledge that leads to spiritual growth, knowledge that leads us to know you better. So we ask for your special grace now, and we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. When I look at 2 Corinthians, it's a very different book to 1 Corinthians. Lindsay made the comment to me, it's not so structured, is it? No, it isn't. In fact, we're going to see that others, people have ideas about it. But before we do that, I want to introduce you to two very important Bible study words. One is exegesis. Now, exegesis basically means where you sit down and you examine a book or a portion of Scripture within its context, looking at the words, looking at the background, looking at the possibilities. <clears throat> and exegesis is a really, really important, important thing to do. Austin, when you gave us that message the other day, how many hours did you spend in getting it ready? Roughly. Uh, approximately? Five? Yeah. And Jared would be the same. And if you ask Lindsay how often, how much time he spends <clears throat> getting a message ready, he'll tell you hours. John, the same. And for myself... 50 years on 2 Corinthians because I've been teaching 2 Corinthians and my whole life has been in Bible teaching. So I've spent all of those years re-examining, looking at, and that's the background. But the second word is important too, and that's exposition. And so having understood what it's all about, then we have to say, what does it mean to me? What does this now mean to our church? What does God say to us through what Paul wrote under the Spirit's guidance to the Corinthians all those years ago? And so we need now to apply 2 Corinthians, its teaching, to our life here within this church. 
And that's an important thing. So just keep the two words in your mind. You think about those who are preparing, but you need to do some exegesis as well. You go home and be a Berean and go and check the Bible and make sure that everything that's being said here is in fact what God wants us to know. And maybe what's being said here isn't quite enough. Maybe you can find something extra, something more important that you can find as well. So the exegesis is really important, but it's not enough. You have to then apply it to your heart and life, and God is able to really bless it. Now, for those who weren't with us in 1 Corinthians, uh, the background is simply that Corinth was a really important multicultural centre. It was the equivalent of a Singapore of today, uh, where Singapore has got so many different people coming through it. It was also a strategic military centre, very commercial hub of that whole region, uh, but it was a tremendously idolatrous religious centre. But unfortunately, with all the soldier sailors and all the people passing through, they were incredibly immoral city. I think I told you that they, one temple alone had over 1,000 prostitutes, both male and female. And so this was a, just a wicked, wicked city. Uh, it's come into our language today. And Paul went there on his second missionary journey. Uh, and you can see down there near, um, where's this gadget here? Uh, there's Corinth down there, right down at the bottom of Greece. And when we went with our trip with John a couple of years ago, we ended up in Corinth. It's a ruined city now, but you can go and see a little bit of the outline of it. And so that church was established on that journey when people heard the gospel. Now, Paul had gone there specifically to preach the gospel, and this was the gospel that he preached. He tells us. He tells us exactly this is the gospel. We preach Christ crucified. In another place, he says, Christ died for our sins. That's true. But then he didn't say that's the end of the story. He went on and said, we preach Christ risen from the dead. So we now have a living saviour, one who died, but one who now is alive. Then he goes on to tell us, and we'll see that today, we preach Christ who is the Son of God. Now you may recall, if you were here when I was talking about 1 Corinthians, that these are the foundation truths of every church, or needs to be. These are the things that people need to know, and this is what the Corinthians heard, and this is what the Corinthians believed. Now... To receive salvation requires that we repent. It requires that we turn from our own independent way of living and we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And he, Paul will tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that that's exactly what he preached. We preach Christ as Lord and you understood it and you believed it. And of course in a church like ours, we, we Constantly bring these thoughts to people, and it's important that we respond to this, that we understand that Christ died for our sins. Christ is our living Savior. He rose from the dead. He is truly the Son of God, and He also now requires, or we require, to acknowledge Him as the Lord of our life as we come in submission and repentance. And so he wrote that first letter about five years later, and we spent a long time looking at this earlier on in last year, when it said, we heard about the problems in the church, and Paul heard about them, and he wrote to address those problems. But also some questions were brought to him by those three friends that some of you will remember, Stephanus, Fortunatus, 
Anachiasis, I like saying those words. And so they brought the reports of the problems of the questions that the church had about marriage and about spiritual gifts and about how much money they should give and when and how they should give. So we saw all of those things last year. But now that first letter was rejected. Some people didn't like it. They didn't like to be told by Paul. They actually didn't like Paul. They didn't accept him as an apostle. I mean, he didn't walk with Jesus, did he? And he wasn't one of the 12, was he? He wasn't there. He didn't see the miracles that Jesus did. He probably heard about them. In fact, I'm sure he did. But he he wasn't one of them. And so the people in Corinth were saying, well, why should we take any notice of what Paul says? And who does he think he is? We'd rather follow Peter. Or we even like the preaching of Apollos. Remember all those things we saw in 1 Corinthians? But as for Paul, we don't like him. And so we do know now that Paul made a visit to Corinth, which we don't read about in the Acts of the Apostles. He talks about it. But it was such a painful visit, and it didn't produce any kind of fruitful result, no positive response, and Paul was really, really disappointed. He he talks about a very sad visit, a painful visit, he said. So he now writes a second letter, and he says, I'm coming back. And this time I'm not going to come back and, and sort of say, you're nice people. I'm going to come back with my apostolic authority, and I intend to show you that I'm not just a person who talks, but I'm a person who will do, and I will do it with apostolic authority to bring order back to the church at Corinth. And so these things you notice as you read through the whole book of 2 Corinthians. Now, if you do your exegesis correctly, you're going to notice that the book falls into three main segments. Chapters 1 to 7, it's the apostle and his ministry. It's more or less giving us um, a defense of his apostleship, a defense of his ministry, a description of what he's on about and why he does it. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he talks about you, the believers, and your response to the grace of God. If God has shown you grace, then what kind of grace are you showing in response in practical ways? And, and it's a really important part. And then in the last three cha- four chapters, 10 to 13, he identifies many of the issues, the, the, the stumbling blocks to the ministry progressing. In fact, he comes to the end of chapter 13 and he looks at the believers and he says, now listen here, I want you to examine yourself. I want you to see whether Jesus Christ is really in you. Are you truly born again? Do you truly pass the test? Are you truly a follower of Jesus? Have you truly repented? And so he doesn't mince words in those last chapters as he deals with people who were being a bit disobedient and uh, insubmissive. But for our exposition here in our church today and over these coming weeks, in my mind I suddenly remembered that in chapter 11 verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, please follow my example as I follow Jesus. So he's more or less setting his own life out there as a pathway, a pattern for others to follow. Now that's a bold thing for anyone to do. I wouldn't like you to follow me because it would be really bad news for you. But if you follow Christ. But Paul was able to say it. 
And then later on in Philippians, he writes to them from Rome and he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, would you do that? Do that, he says. Do what you've heard and seen and received in me. Important things. And so what we want to do over these next couple of weeks is to learn from Paul's experience. Learn from what he tells us of his story. Now, some of you were here earlier uh, in December when I told you a little bit about our story, my wife's story, my story, and I hope it was an encouragement to some of you to really trust God and to know God as the living God. Well, Paul is more or less doing the same in these first seven chapters. And he gives, as he gives us his testimony and he tells us the lessons that he learned, he also sets out his reasons for serving God. He, called, he defends his position as an apostle, as one who has been called and set apart by God and he is doing what God has commanded him to do. He knows himself to be an ambassador for Christ, he says. And then as he calls on those believers, as I said a little earlier, to respond to the grace of God, it's going to change their life and make them a different kind of people. And ultimately, he, he identifies those challenges I talked about in chapters 10 to 13. These are the reasons. This is the reason for the problems in the church. And he, he has a, a very few a strong words to say. Now, some considered that there were three different letters all combined as one, those three segments. But I don't. I think it's all put together. At least we will now look at it as one letter. And for me, personally, it has been the letter that has given me the standards for my service for God. Now, you may say, but I'm not a missionary. I'm not one of the... No, every one of us are servants of God. Every one of us has opportunity to serve God. I love what the Lord Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, verse 34, where he tells the story, and it's a parable, and he says it's as if the one is gone away, and he calls his servants to him as he goes away, and he gives to each and every one of them their own work to do. But of course, when he comes back, what does he do? He calls them and he says, now this is what I asked you to do. Tell me how you got on. Now, if you think about yourself in that context, every single one of us here in our, in our Budroom Church, every one of us has been given our own work to do. And the Lord Jesus has gone away. But when he returns, he will ask an accounting of what it is that he's given us to do. And that has always been in the back of my mind. And so when I read 2 Corinthians, that's what I'm thinking about. My service for God. Who am I? What am I? What does it say to me? And what are the standards that I'm expected to meet? Now, you know me. I like to put my Bible knowledge into little segments where I can always find it and recover it. It's like your kitchen as I talk about it. If I ask you, where's the Vegemite in your kitchen? You'd say, well, of course, it's in the kitchen. But which cupboard is it in the kitchen? Well, it's that one in the corner. Well, how do you know? Well, I put it there. And I know if I need the Vegemite, I don't have to scramble through drawers or anything like that. I just go there and I can take it out. Well, I like to put my Bible knowledge into segments, into cupboards where I can get it out and use it when I need it. And it's not saying, if I have to say, well, I'm sure it's in the Bible somewhere. I think it might be somewhere. 
I need to know where it is and I need to know how to get it. And I need, so what I tend to do when I read through a book like this is find uh, a, a whole kind of things. But, now, but before I look at the little outline I've got, then these are the, my mind, the key verses. The key verses. I know that Ron Turner will agree with me because in his mind, these are the key verses for his whole life. Christ's love compels me because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all that those who live, put your hand up if you live because of Christ, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That to me is a very important basic principle of the Christian life. You are no longer to live for yourself. You are to live for the one who died for you and was raised again. That's the standard that I see. But then it goes on. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly human point of view. So we don't look at race. We don't look at position. We don't look at color. We don't look at anything. We look at somebody and we say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone, anyone is in Christ. So be a drug addict, be, be a drunk, be an immoral person, be it anyone at all, an idolater, someone worshipping idols. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation, a new creature. All things go, everything, and this becomes a completely different way of looking at people. Wow. I don't know what your thoughts are when you think about terrorists. I don't know what your thoughts are when you think about ISIS. I don't know what your thoughts are when you think about bikey gangs. I don't know what your thoughts are. Well, from Paul's point of view, he says, because the love of Christ is compelling me, I don't look at anybody anymore from a human point of view. I see people now with that great possibility that if anyone is in Christ, they'll be a new creation. Well, here's my cupboard. This is my cupboard. This is where I can find the parts in 2 Corinthians when I need to find them. And I, I've gone through it, and, and I know that you'll have a different set of cupboards because you've got different tastes to me and, and different things. But this is when I read it through again and again. And I told you that when I study a book like 2 Corinthians, I read it through 30 times. And then I start to think about it. The reason is I want to know the whole of the book. I don't want to know just this chapter and then say that's enough. I want the whole of it. I want all of it in my mind. I want to be able to think of the whole chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, go all the way. I can think about that and what's in each and every chapter. And then I put it into these little cupboards. And so I'm able to find out. And so that's the little outline. You've got it there on the sheet in front of you, I hope. And uh, I, you, you'd probably make a better one than mine. You might make one that rhymes or something like that. Or you can sing a, sing a song about it or something. That, that's up to you. But do it because you're able then to recover your, your teaching. 
So in this first segment that we're looking at today in chapter 1, which in my mind goes right through to the end of chapter 217, but I'm only looking at chapter 1 today, is that knowing God, if you know God, then you can't help but serve him. If you know God, then you cannot help but give yourself to him. Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God. Knowing God, that's eternal life. And when you know God, then you can't help but fall before him. You can't help but give yourself to him. You can't help but begin to live for him if you truly know God. If you want a God that suits you, then you're not talking about the God of the Bible. You're talking about the God of the Bible. He's a God who completely, utterly then takes complete control of your life and you yield to him, you submit to him and your life life takes on incredible meaning then. That's what Paul is telling us. Daniel said it. He said it really well. It's the people who know God who will be strong and do great things. Paul wrote about it in his Ephesians letter. He says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you that you'll know God better. So Paul was looking at his life experience and he said, I tell you what, in my life experience, I've learned to know God. The reading would say like this, chapter 1. If you're following in your Bible, you can. Otherwise, see it from the screen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion or mercy, the God of all comfort, which is the same as encouragement, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, we also, also, also you share in our comfort. Well, here's two things we can know about God from those couple of verses, that introduction. That he's the father of mercies. Well, that word mercy is also the same as compassion. And it means that God feels along with us. He thinks along with us. He experiences along with us. And and, and, why it's a daily experience. In Lamentations, Jeremiah wrote, he said, his mercies never fail. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. And we sing a song that says something like, great is thy faithfulness. And it's true, because that's the kind of God he is. But then when Paul thinks about God's mercy, he looks at the Roman believers and he says, I beseech you, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. So it demands a response. It's not good for us simply to be recipients of God's mercy. Yes, God, give me mercy, give me mercy, and do nothing about it. Give your body back to God. Give yourself back to God. That's what the Scripture is telling us. And so Paul talks about it. 
And you know, when I read the Bible in other parts, and this is what your exegesis will do, it'll take you to other parts of the Bible where the same sort of thought is presented. And in Romans, we see he's the God who gives endurance and comfort or endurance and encouragement. And that's an amazing thing because he's not only a father of mercies, but he's a God of comfort. You remember I've told you this word comfort or this Greek word is translated in, the, in these two ways. Now I talk about comfort as somebody with their arm around your shoulder when you're going through a tough time. And it's a beautiful thing to have someone put your arm around your shoulder when you're going through a really, really tough time to know that they're there for you. Well, that's God. But then the other part of this word is encouragement. And that's a hand right in the middle of your back saying, and don't get stuck here. Keep going. Keep going. It's a push. It's keep going. Get on with this life that God's got for you. And that's the beautiful thing about God. He's not only the father of mercy, but he's the God of encouragement. He's the God of comfort. His hand is in the middle of your back. No matter where you are in your life right now, he's pushing you on and saying, live, live for God, serve God, love God, love your neighbor, do things for God. Arm around your shoulder. Yes, he understands what you're going through, but he's pushing you on to do great things and do more things. So what happens? If I know God is this kind of God, then what am I going to do? Say, praise God from whom all blessing? Well, yeah, I should, but I have to serve him. And so I'm in a position now, having received God's mercy and God's encouragement, I'm now in a position to be able to show mercy and to show encouragement and to put my hand in the middle of somebody else's back and give them a push along because that's what God has done for me. I now am able to do it for others. So as I say, knowing God means I have to serve him. Well, Paul goes on to tell us about his really difficult time. I don't know what happened to him. I'm glad I don't because if I knew what happened to him, I'd probably say, oh, well, that happened to him doesn't really matter to me. What he simply says is this, look at this. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. We despaired even of our life. Have you ever been to that position in your experience where you despaired even of your own life? Well, Paul got to that point. I haven't got to that point yet. I've certainly been through some hardships, but not to that point. But Paul says, I did. And then he says, even in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened. Look at this. This happened so that we might not rely on ourselves. Now, friends, one of the great problems in our personal lives is that we rely on ourselves and God is our last resort. But Paul says the opposite. He said, we've learned the lesson knowing God is the God who can raise the dead, he says. Why wouldn't you trust a God who can raise the dead rather than rely on yourself? God is not the God of last resort. He's the God who wants to take your life and my life and make us something really special for you. And whatever the circumstance, he says he's delivered us from such a deadly peril, he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope. I love that. What's your hope set on? The bank? 
the government, your rallies, or is your hope set on God? It's really, to me, a very challenging thing. You see, when we think of a God who raises the dead, and this is that third thing that Paul talks about, Father of mercies, God of encouragement, now he says he's a God who can raise the dead. Well, that's good enough for me. If I've got a God who can raise the dead, he's, he's a God of the absolutely impossible. Because, well, you can read those scriptures in Numbers, what happened, how Moses had to learn that lesson. And is anything too hard how Jeremiah had to learn a lesson? And then, of course, it's Mary when she says, but I, but I don't know a man. How can I have a child? I've, I've never been with a man. Well, with God, all things are possible. With God, everything is possible. So you learn those lessons. So I can serve him. I can rely on God for every single circumstance. There is no circumstance in my life which is outside God's control. And friends, in your life, exactly the same. There is nothing happens in your life beyond the reach, the touch, the control of your heavenly Father who loves you. Because he's the Father of mercy, the God of all comfort, and he's the God who can even raise the dead. Well, Paul goes on to say more. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves, this is his testimony, in the world, especially in our relations with you, in holiness and sincerity that are from God. So this is a special kind of way of living in a world of wickedness and sin. But he says it's from God. He says we've not done so according to worldly wisdom, but we've done it according to God's grace. Now, that's really encouraging to me because I don't know about you, but I am confronted by worldly wisdom. I'm confronted by worldly attractions. I'm con confronted by seductions and all kinds of things every day of my life. But here is a way to live. This is what God wants, a way for us to live, to live in the world in holiness and sincerity that comes from God. And of course, this comes from the God who gives us the grace to do so. Now we sing that lovely song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. But we sometimes perhaps forget the second verse. This grace teaches my heart and teaches me what I should do. And if you read the verse in Titus where it all occurs, it teaches us to renounce worldliness. It teaches us to renounce ungodliness. It teaches us to renounce everything that's self-interested and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And so God's grace is saving, sanctifying, empowering, enabling. Why? I want to serve him. But I need to serve him in holiness. I need to serve him with godly sincerity. And brothers and sisters, anything less than that isn't good enough for God. Because God has given you every single resource to enable you to do it. He enables you. He empowers you. He's equipped you. And now he expects it of you. And of course of me. And that's what I learned from Paul. 
Paul goes on to say a little further, because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you may benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia, to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Now, they were his plans, but it didn't work out that way. Other things intervened. I'm not sure exactly what intervened, but it doesn't really matter to me. Some, sometimes the things that I plan and what I want to do don't work out. Well, am I to be disappointed? Not at all. But in some case, people misunderstand that. And this is what was going on then. People misunderstood Paul and said, he's one of those yes, but he really means no. He's one of those people who say no when he really means yes. He's one of those fellows who, who can't make up his mind or he, he's not fair dinkum. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Do I make my plans in a worldly way so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, no, no? But then he says, I want to tell you that as surely as God is faithful. In other words, my life is governed by the attribute of God. If God says yes, then I'm a person who means yes when I say yes. If God says no, then I'm a person who needs to say no when God says no. He says this, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Tim. He's not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. And I love this verse. Look at this verse, which I've highlighted. It says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. John and I went down to Alora Lodge last Thursday. Alora Lodge is one of the nursing homes around. And, and we, I said to the old folk down there, there's about 19 or 20 of them come along. And I said to them, do you know this old song? It says, standing on the... And promise her, they knew it. And we were able to sing that song. And it was an incredible joy. Standing on the promises of Christ my Lord. And if you read the verses, it says, I'll never fall and I'll never fail. And it tells us that these are the promises that we can rely. And look at this. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus. See that amen down there at the bottom? Amen. So that through him the amen. You know, what does amen mean? Well, it means so be it. Let it be so. But it also means, it's got two meanings. Sometimes when I make a request or I hear you making a request in your prayer and I say amen, I'm saying let it be so. Yes, yes, let it be so. But sometimes amen has a different meaning completely. It means that's right. That's absolutely right. What do you think the meaning is here? Let it be so? Oh, that's right. That's right. It's true. Oh, I like it. That's right. That's right. Because the promises are in Christ Jesus. And when we're blessed with all the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus... We can all say amen because it's absolutely true. 
Absolutely true. Well, he's a God who's completely faithful. That's what I learn about God there. This is what Paul says. I've learned it. God is faithful. And of course, there's some scriptures that you can check out when you go home and do your exegesis. You can see that God is faithful to forgive us, to keep us blameless, to help us escape from temptation, to complete his sanctifying work. And he is a very faithful God, we read in Hebrews. He keeps his promises. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. So I preach and I want to preach that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you need to love him and to believe in him. You need to turn to him, receive him as your Lord and Savior. And it's the most important decision you could ever make in your life is to know Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, finally, as I read on through chapter one, I come to this verse. It is God who makes both us and you to stand firm in Christ. You see, knowing God, it's not a battle where you're battling on, doing it all in your own strength. Paul is teaching us to rely on God, to trust God, to accept the promises of God, to to live for God, not to live for ourselves. He said, because he has commissioned us, he has anointed us, he set his seal of ownership on us, And above all, he put his spirit in our hearts as an absolute guarantee. It's a seal. It's a mark, a guarantee that whatever he's said he'll going to do, whatever he's promised, it's only just the beginning we experience now. We've got a whole eternity to experience all these wonderful things about God. Well, I know I've rushed through chapter 1, but you don't need to rush through chapter 1. You can go home and read it for yourself very slowly, very carefully, very prayerfully, and I want you to understand what you need to know about your God. I want you to know God. And when you know God, you'll end up on your knees and you'll want to serve Him. And when you serve Him, it will be with a whole heart. Friends, He's the God who commissions us. He's the God who chooses us. We don't choose him. He chooses us. He establishes us. He commissions us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. We are clay in his hands. We are like clay. And we sometimes sing with half a heart, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own Thou art the potter. Only half a heart, because we're really not fair dinkum about that. But we need to be. Because with the God we've got, knowing God, well, I want to serve him. I want to serve him. I want to serve believers. And Paul says, in his case, I'm not here to boss people around. And again, I'm not here to boss you around, to tell you what to do. What I want to do, and this is exactly what Paul says. He says, I want to work with you for your joy. I want you to know the joy of salvation, the joy of fellowship, the joy of obedience, the joy even in suffering, the joy of trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you suffer various trials, James says. Well, there is a joy in the Christian life. It's an unspeakable joy. It's full of glory. I want to work with you for that joy. And that's what Paul says. Well, my time's well and truly up. I'm sorry. But I have to ask you this question. Which one of those attributes is likely to turn you on for God? Which one of those things that I spoke about right now 
And I mean, all I've done is read through the chapter and identify what Paul says. These are the reasons why I serve God. So which one of those? Is it because he's the father of mercy? Is it because he's the God of all comfort? Is he because he's the God who's able to raise the dead? In other words, nothing is impossible. Nothing's too hard for him. Or is it the fact that he gives you grace to save you, to teach you, to enable you, to empower you? What kind of God? Which part of these things really turns you on for God? Which one of these things compels you to give yourself to him? Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not a game. And it's not a Sunday-only thing. It's an everyday life experience. And it's an experience where we know God and we give our hearts and lives to him. Which one? God is faithful. The God who has a purpose and a plan for your life, who commissions you. He anoints you. And he gives you his Holy Spirit so that you can be and do the things that he wants you to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 2 Corinthians. It becomes a very challenging book for us when we begin to apply it to ourselves. We know that Paul's experience is not exactly our experience. What happened to him happened to him. What happens to us happens to us. But you're the same God. You don't change. You're the God who can. You're the God who is. You're the God who never changes. And it's we who need to come to you and to know you and then to mold and make our lives in accordance with your perfect will. Lord, we sing the song, but today we need to take a decision, a decision which says truly, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. We need to really yield before you. And as we begin this new year of study and the scriptures, we just pray, Lord, that our hearts will always be open to what it is that you want to say to us. And so we thank you. And we pray, as Paul wrote at the end of 2 Corinthians, may the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. May the love of God fill your hearts. May the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be your portion every day. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So God bless you all. Morning tea on the deck. God bless you. Thank you.